Slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the Indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view. The people who work in the prison system would have another. And I think it's up to people to decide uh, you know, where, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio, 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. Hello and welcome to the Doing Time Show. This is 3CR Community Radio, 855am on the dial, streaming live on www.3cr.org.au. This is Marissa and I'll be taking you through until 5 o'clock this evening. And the warning that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners are advised that this story contains audio images of people who have died. The 15th of April 2021 marks 30 years, approximately 30 years, since the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, which handed down its final report on April 15th, 1991. The report made 339 recommendations but very few have been implemented and there is very little change. Today's broadcast is a roll call in honour of all deaths in custody, but in particular, this show is dedicated to JC, as she is known for cultural reasons. And we'll be interviewing shortly Auntie Anne Jones, who is the mother of JC, and just a little bit about her before we go on to that. And, and of course... We'll be having Auntie Megan with um, Auntie Anne, and who has been a wonderful support to her, and we'll be speaking to, to both of them today. JC is, is a young mother of one, and she was fatally shot in the street on September 17, 2019, in the Geraldton suburb of Kalu. And the 29-year-old woman was taken into Geraldton Regional Hospital, where she later died of her injuries. A police officer was charged with her murder and we will hear about what happened with his subsequent court case. JC's death triggered massive protests in Geraldton and sparked outrage across the state. We will hear very soon from um, Auntie Anne about this. And then after that, we'll be speaking with Ian Rintel from the Rich Refugee Action Coalition about the spread of coronavirus at the Parkville Hotel and other detention centres in Melbourne, and the inadequate response of the Australian government to to help with this. So, yeah, pretty, pretty soon we, we will speak with Auntie Anne and they will tell us what land they are from and we're going to be speak with, speaking with them very, very shortly. Ninth Koori Art Show is calling for entries. This is your chance to showcase your work. 
All works entered will be exhibited at the Koori Heritage Trust. To enter, you must be a Victorian-based Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander artist aged 17 years and older. There is a total prize pool of $32,000. Go online to kuriheritagetrust.com.au to register. Entries close on the 1st of November. Koori Heritage Trust is a 3CR supporter. And you're back with the Doing Time show. And I'd like to welcome um, Auntie Anne and Auntie Megan to the show. Hello to the both of you. Hello. Hey, Marissa. How are you going? Now, I'm which Mar- one's which? I'm the first. Yeah, I'm the first one that said hello. That's Auntie Megan? That's me. Hello. How are you, darling? And Auntie Anne? Hello, Marissa. That's me. Okay, I have your voice in my memory now. Okay, so so you're the mother, you're the mother of JC, and you heard my yeah. introduction, obviously. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm her mum. I've been her mum for. I've fostered her from a five-month-old baby, but I am classed as her. You know, she's known me as her mum. Of course, you're her mum. Yes, Absolutely. I'm her mum. Yep. Auntie. And did you want to just start off by telling us what land you're from, and, and maybe you, and perhaps you too, Annie Megan as well? I'm from the Midwest Gascoigne. Um, it's called Yamidi, yeah, Yamidi Country or Wajiri Country. That's where I'm from. I'm originally from Carnarvon, but my uh, family's around the Midwest Gascoigne, right down to. Yorkton, Mullawar, out to Minkasara. That's where she was. That's where she was born in Minkasara, my daughter. But family members drifted all through the Midwest Gascoigne. And JC was from the same land. Yep. Yeah. She was born in Minkasara, and where we put her, laid her to rest in Carnarvon. That's where her great grandmother and grandparents, uh, grandfather's of the family is buried in Carnarvon. And Auntie Megan, you've been supporting supporting um, Auntie Anne, haven't you? Yeah, there's been... <clears throat> so there's myself and Jerry George Artis. We're both on the National Suicide Prevention Trauma Recovery Project. With a two year, within a two-year period, we've worked with about 18,000 um, of the most vulnerable and marginalised across the nation and very much... Yeah. So... Annie Ann, we came into contact um, with Annie Ann shortly thereafter, and even in fact that night, um, yeah. with how the media was portraying Miss Clark, um, we just had Jerry George Artisy had to correct the narrative because the dear soul, she was failed by a number of, by the system, by the system in terms of Department of Health with mental health the prison system and also the police, but there's a number of failures. But we have been supporting. There's a lot of love and respect for Annie and the family, and we've been on the journey since it first happened right until now, and yeah. we continue, in fact, Annie Ann's family. So there's a lot of love and respect there. But I'm just... My name is Megan Cracker. I work... Well, I work for the National Suicide Prevention Trauma Recovery Project, as I mentioned. But where I'm from is a place called Mount Barker, which is just about three and a half hours out of Perth. Um, Noongar Yoga and just we're trying to elevate the deficit discourse, particularly in these trying circumstances without 
the political will of the government. Thank you so much for, for letting me know that. The Do and Time show has had a very, very long tradition of having First Nations people introduce their land first and foremost, and we also look at lived experience as well. Yes, thank, thank you. Thank you. So let's talk about what happened, and like it's really what we're doing today is really just having a, a discussion about what happened because it's really important that listeners are aware of the real story. So I'm wondering um, if the two of you, and, and maybe you could start off, um, Arnie-Anne, or if you, whatever you feel comfortable, that you two feel comfortable with, just talk about what happened and also what happened with the murder charge as well. Well, at the time, at the time it happened, I was same in Mullawal, that's where I live, and my granddaughter and... Um, daughter-in-law, they were in Jordan, in Kalu. Now that's where she was there with. She was there with my granddaughter and the, um, the daughter-in-law. Yeah. And she just sort of snapped and got a little bit, you know. Started, you know, when when you got that, when you either, you know, like she was like getting a bit. Crabby or whatever you like to say, and they and ra had a little argument with my granddaughter, which she loved, you know. But it's just that she just went off. I don't know what for, but anyway, they rang me and you know, and I said, well, just ring the you know, just ring the police to see if they can go and get do a welfare check on me, and that's. Went from there to, then they come out with, oh, they rang back and said, oh, she, the police shot her up the road. And I said, what? And then there's all this, you know, they never, they never did a welfare check on her. They never, never even tried to do a welfare check on her. And then the next thing I found out from family members, not from the police that she got shot, this came from family members that rang me and said, oh, mummy, mummy's up the road, because all the, little, all the young children in Delton that knew her, they knew her as mummy Joyce. Yeah. And when she got shot, well, there was quite a few young kids around there and then they ran back and rang up, rang up to me and said, Mummy Joyce got shot. The police shot her. And that was... That's all I heard until the police... The police commissioner... Not commissioner, the superintendent came out from the Orton to Mullah War about up past 11 that night just to come and pay their condolences. But I've already known from seven o'clock that night. So it's a bit slow. Very slow. Yeah, very slow. And it's an hour's only an hour's drive. So I was too busy worrying about keep protecting their them lot you know, the police in the hospital because my daughter, my granddaughter and my um daughter in law now, they went up to the hospital straight after. They knew that they took her to the hospital. They went up there to try and go and see her. 
but they got locked out. And because my granddaughter grew up with her, like they're not, they were they were only a couple of years, well, about five, six years apart, and they more or less grew up like sisters. And then when they went in there to try and see her, they were told that they couldn't go in. And my granddaughter and my daughter-in-law, they were really, you know, they were just screaming and shouting outside to try and get in. And none, nobody would have let them get, get in there. And then I think somebody rang Megan now to... rang Megan about them two was out the front. And then Megan rang Sandy and... East wife Debbie, Debbie, and they ended up at the Carnarvon, um, at the Jordan Hospital. But they still didn't get in. They just locked up, locked the hospital down, wouldn't let them get in. So it's really about police investigating police, isn't it? Yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, apparently, and from what I can gather here, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but from what I can see here, um. She was fatally shot, and and the police didn't even bother to talk with her and or calm her down. Only one one the senior sergeant was calming her down. He was he was the one that was twenty twenty three meters from her. He was the old he was the old police officer that was standing on the other side with her, talking to her, and that uh, the one that shot her he just he was the last, that was the last car to pull up, mm-hmm. and jumped out and just went bang. Can you tell listeners what what's happened now? Um, and before I do that, I want to offer my condolences again yes. to JC's and we need to honour her on air. Mm. This is about this is this is this is a show that's being done in JC's honour and in mm. honour of and, yourself. Yep, and, and the whole family. And they from from the time she. Was a young, you know, was a baby. She's DCP took her from her mother, and that's how come I ended up with her. Me and my partner ended up with her, and then my partner passed away in 2000, and we had her right up, you know. And then I ended up looking after her myself then, being a single mum with my children, and then she had a little boy back in her little, her little boy. Back in 2011, I think, 11 or 12. Anyway, he's nine. But when he was born, she was in a relationship with the father and then had a domestic in the hospital, which did four days old when the little boy was four days old, and the DCP and the police department went in there and just snatched him out of her hand and took him. And he was in care for two years before I fought to get him and I got him at two years of age but she still had that contact which DCP tried to tell me I couldn't give her contact with him but I went I just said no I can't let my daughter she has to have contact with her son or even you know be with her son whenever she wants to. That's wonderful Mm. that you're able to have the child. Now I know this is a really difficult subject but it's really important for listeners. And, and yeah, then then that's what the thing was, and you know they deprived her of that. She wanted yeah. a 
you know, and that's why she ended up in prison all the time. And then, you know, when she went back to Jordan, I just don't know what happened that day because I was not over in Jordan. Yeah, yeah. I was, I was home in Mullawar, and then all I just heard about them, you know, the police shooting her. And then it's really awful. Two, and then we sit for two years waiting for this trial. Two years? Yeah, mm-hmm. two years. And so, for two years, that two yeah. years, that police officer never, ever sat behind bars. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about the police officer. What mm. happened? What, what was, was he charged with they murder? They arrested him. What, what's happened since then? They didn't charge him. They, they, the, the, day, the night it happened, they just took him to the hospital, did whatever, whatever they did to them there, you know. And then he went home back to his, his partner and his kids. They didn't, they didn't do anything until March. That's when they got evidence that, or they've got a footage of that footage now that's going around. It's been televised. They got that footage. And then he ended up in jail. They took him into prison, took him into the locker, into the police station in Jordan, four o'clock that morning, interviewed him. Then by five o'clock, they flew him out from there on a plane to Perth here to take him straight through to the courts and charged him with murder. Then from there, when he got charged with murder and um, remanded in custody, even his his lawyer went from that court to the other court and applied for bail. And in in the... I don't know which court it is, but... Anyways, they went and they got bail for him. Yeah. Mm. So he was out on bail of $200,000. So the bail, he, he put in 100000 The police union put the 100000 up. Mm. And he's been in Perth here for the two years sitting in a motel room or whatever, not, a, not in a cell. In the motel room. Mm. He sat in that motel room right until right through the trial as well. Now, if there was a, if that was an Aboriginal person, they would have been in jail sitting back waiting for two years. Absolutely, you're right. Yep. And all he can say in the court when he went to court was he was fearing for his life. There was other police officers around there. He put himself in the, and tried to say that she was lunging at him and whatever. She was just standing still, just staring at him more than anything else. You know, wasn't 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 even trying to chuck the knife or anything at him. And what's the current mm-hmm. situation now? <clears throat> he got out, got free. He got acquitted. He got acquitted. Yes. After two, three and a half weeks, we sat. And then you're going on for three weeks. We sat at the courthouse all that time, going through, you know, through the legal processes. And then on Friday, it took three hours for the jurors to come back with a verdict: not guilty 
of murder, not guilty of manslaughter. And yet it was alleged that JC, she didn't kill anybody. She didn't kill anybody. No. It was alleged she had a knife, but they could have talked her out of having, you know, dropping the knife. There was she no was already... That's the reason why she was standing still. She wasn't intending to do anything to anybody. She was just standing there. Mm. And before... You know, the, the senior sergeant was talking to her. Like, like I was saying first time, he just jumped out of the car. He couldn't even wait for the car to stand stop still. He jumped off, jumped out and ran along the side really? of the car. So there have been more than 400 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that have died in police custody, haven't there, since the end of the Royal Commission. And during that time, only a handful of cases have resulted in prosecution. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's absolutely horrendous with what's going on and the, the injustices that have been suffered. is not... What, what actually happened? I'd come in that Jerry Georgiatis had contacted me that night because he was getting phone calls left, right and centre from the Yamaji community. He'd spoken to myself. I'd spoken to Debbie Woods. She's the... CEO of the Geraldton Regional Aboriginal Medical Service, Sandy Davies, who's the chairperson of the Geraldton Regional Aboriginal Medical Service, and both are absolutely wonderful with what they do, not only in the Yamaji country, but very much right across the nation and very much in, across the state. But there's a number of failings here, and just going back to what happened on that tragic day, it's eight police officers at the, at the scene, eight police officers, there was a gentleman who was 33 metres away from Miss Clark and he was trying to de-escalate the situation. And he was 10 days earlier. He did come into contact with Miss Clark, rest in peace, and he took her to the hospital for a um, to make sure that she was OK. Now, 10 days later, the same officer, he's trying to de-escalate the situation. And the car with the accused or the person who's now been acquitted... He was one of us on scene. He was the most junior officer on scene. He did not take into account that, yes, there was already a senior officer who was known to Miss Clark and she knew him as well, um, who was already de-escalating the situation. As soon as he jumped out the car and the car had barely stopped, four steps, he was pulling out his gun. He gets to her, and this all happens within 17 seconds. He gets the poor little soul. They have a face-off within three seconds. Miss Clark, rest in peace, she did not move her feet. Did not move her feet at all. And on, no. as the CCTV footage clearly shows, um, there was no, she was not intending on raising the knife or anything like that. But he took it upon himself, the most junior person, three officers out of the car, the others were in the car, one, the most senior person who was parking the car and containing the area, the area was very much contained by that sense. And he took it upon himself, I'm going to shoot her, and that's exactly what he did. Now, the yep. mere fact that he wasn't convicted of murder, the mere fact that he wasn't convicted of manslaughter and the mere fact that he was acquitted of these charges is absolutely disgusting, absolutely disgusting. But we must also take into account some of the other organisations and the institutions and the government who have failed. We must, we must remember that two years prior to Ms Clark, rest in peace, coming out into the community, she was in a prison. Now... Being in a prison, where was the restorative justice? Where was the rehabilitation? Where was the support to ensure that she was coming out into a house, into the support, 
That's what they're supposed to do. That's what they're funded to do. And they failed to do that. In terms of the mental health support, well, where was that? Why did the police officers not have somebody who was trained in mental health and even the police officers being trained in mental health to de-escalate the situation? There was none of that. So the mere fact that a man, a police officer, who was the most junior on site that day, who arrived in the car that pulled up last, within 17 seconds, shoots Miss Clark dead, is just an absolutely disgusting tragedy. And it's an indictment not only on the police department, Department of Corrective Services in Western Australia, but very much in Western Australia, the government and the federal government. The Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody report in 1991, 339 recommendations. They haven't even been implemented. So therefore, there's no political will, no political will whatsoever. Um, Absolutely. There, there should have been more done. There wasn't more done. What we're seeing right now is that at least 485 people of our brothers and sisters, First Nations right across this nation since 1991, have died at the hands of police, have died in the prison system. Now, yep. by 2025, we're expecting that number of our brothers and sisters, all our countrymen and, and ladies and children, we're expecting that that's to grow to 600. Now, that begs the question, what was the point of having a Royal Commission if they're not going to implement the recommendation? What was the point? We know that there's a gap between the haves and the have-nots, but in terms of what happened with Miss Clark, it's a total injustice, it's a travesty, and this West Australian government should be ashamed of themselves. In terms of the court process, the court process um, in terms of suppression orders, why is there a suppression order so we cannot mention his name? It's, it's ludicrous, and there's a lot of frustration, there's a lot of outrage, and we need to remember that be, with what's going on, there's a little boy. There's a little boy now growing up without the love... Without a mother. Without his mother. Yep. It's and really he, he, he The next, the last that afternoon, he said, why did the police officer get out, Nana, he said. Oh. And then next morning, he, next, next morning when, you know, we come back, and the next morning he said, Nana, why did that police officer get out? Why didn't he go to jail? He shot my mother, so why didn't he go to jail? And and that's another mm. issue of contention. Mm. And the day and the day that, that that happened, when she did get shot, that was about what, six six fifteen or something. Yeah, six yeah. And we was in Mullawa, me, him me and me and my four grandchildren. Yeah. Three in the little boy, her little boy, and my daughter's three kids. We was out over there, and Mama was sitting down waiting to watch TV, was watching TV. And when that shot happened in Gilton, he looked at me five minutes before a family member rang me to say that she was already gone. He looked me straight in the eye and he said, Nana, my mum's dead. I'm just happy that you were able to get the little boy. We were 100 k's away. Yeah. We was 100 k's away. And that little boy at six years of age just looked me straight in the eye and said, my mum's dead. It's awful. It's it's. So it's he, she died in the hospital. She died right on the scene. Yeah. Arnie Ann and Arnie Megan, it's, it's, I'm so happy that, that you two have come onto the show. I actually got a call 
at 6.30 this morning, um, Marion McKay sent through a message and they wanted she wanted me to do the interview and um, I was really happy to do it and I'm hoping that I can have you back regularly. Yeah. No, thanks, thanks for that, Marissa. I mean, you know what the situation is right across the nation where we're, we're being denied justice. But in yeah. terms of police, we think about many families. Mr Pat, rest in peace. Yep. We think about um, Shadina, rest in peace, where she was held to the ground 65 seconds later. Even like old back. boy, old uncle, that old uncle, Mr Ward. Mr yeah. Ward. Mm -hmm. Cooked yeah. in the van. In the van, he was cooked for four hours by criminally negligent officers. Yes. And Miss Drew, rest in peace. Yes. And many other families right across Western Right across Western Australia. So there hasn't been any accountability. There sure as hell hasn't been any culpability. And this is an issue that's been going on for many years. We know that there's no political will because if there was political will, they would have implemented all the recommendations from the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. But... We see a lot of our people out in the community and they're starving. They've got no food. In Western Australia, for example, we've got 17,000 people on the wait list for the Department of Housing and Home, equating to 44,000 people. Now, one of the things that should have been done, which wasn't done, after Ms Clark rest in peace had left the prison system, is she should have had her own house. Yep. And that's one of the things that she said, and that was the evidence that was given in court. I need my own house, I need my own house, otherwise I'm going to kill myself. And I tell you, she was a very, she was a very clean girl, and she would have looked after her house. That's right. Yep. So unless this support, unless this government, whether it's state or whether it's federal, if they do not implement the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, if they do not provide housing for all our people, black, white, and brown, we yeah. have more people returning back into prison. Unless there is that intense psychosocial support, the assertive outreach, which is 24-7, which isn't part of the mental health plan in Western Australia, we're going to leave brothers and sisters out there to fend for themselves. Is that the kind of world that we want to live in, particularly when it's meant to be about the love and caring for each other? Because after all, we are all brothers and sisters of the human family, but yep. the discrimination, the racism that we're being subjected to, the most marginalised in this country, is alive. It's real, and we are feeling the impact every single day. And we're yes. fighting for for justice, and we won't stop. There is a there is a rally nationwide that is happening on Thursday, and locations: Perth, Geraldton, Sydney, Canberra, Carnarvon, Carnarvon. Yes. So this is what's happening at this point. Flies will be going out within the next um, within the next couple of hours. And we're just really angry. We're angry with a lot of things, particularly with this verdict that's been handed down. It was a clear case of murder. He had intent to kill. He'd taken 17 seconds to go to where she was, the poor little thing. And, you know, there, there was all evidence to suggest other things. But the mere fact is, how can you jump out of a car which had barely stopped, ran to a young girl and, and basically shoot at close range? With the police training, there's a certain area that they should go into or an area that they shouldn't. And he did um, go into that shouldn't area. That, that was a danger zone. The and danger zone. He shouldn't have went into it. Yeah, particularly when he had intention of using the gun if the situation couldn't be de-escalated. He said that he feared for his life. Well, why put yourself in, in harm's way? There was an already an officer trying to de-escalate the situation who already had the relationship with Miss Clark, and as mentioned earlier... 
had taken this officer, Miss Clark, to the hospital 10 days prior. So you worked that out. And when was the actual court case? The last the one? Court, it started on the 4th of October and it concluded on Friday. And there's still a suppression order in place? Yes, there's still a suppression order. Nobody's allowed to say his name. Oh, Never, not even a photo. Not even a, not, not even allowed to see a photo of him. What a travesty of justice! Yep, well, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's and an atrocity. Like I've been asking him and asking him and asking him. I said, "No, I want to know his name. I want to see a photo of him. Can you can you show me?" Oh no, we can't do that. It's been suppressed. Uh huh. That's like that's like. So how can I get it? How can I get it? That's right. And that's what Annie Ann mentioned earlier, Part Here is Miss Clark. She was shot within several hours of him doing what he did because he did shoot her. There's no question about that. Hours later, he was able to go back to his, from the police station back to his family. Two, hours, two, day, two weeks later, he was able to go back to work. Six months later, that's when the homicide squad from Perth went to Geraldton, did what they did in terms of charge, um, arrested him, brought him down to Perth, and when brought down to Perth, he was charged with murder. He went to the magistrate's court that morning and straight straight across to the district court, and that's where he got bail. He has never spent a night in prison. So if that was an Aboriginal person or someone that who... Person was still in jail. That person would have been charged that night. They would have stayed in prison until such time that the trial came came up. That's our reality. Some people in prison over here in Western Australia, they're sitting in prison for one year, two years, just waiting for their court case to be heard. What's the difference? There's no difference. You do the wrong act, you do the we equality. You do the crime, you do the time. But he's, he, he did a crime and he's not doing the time. Just like Chris Hurley, who was living it up on the Gold Coast after he killed he killed um, Damaji. Yep. Arnie Ann and um, Arnie Megan, thank you so much for coming onto the program. It was lovely to have you both. Yep, thank you. We'll be interviewing pretty soon um, about the refugees that are are getting coronavirus left, right and centre in Victoria. Thank you so much to both of you and I'm hoping to have you back very soon. Thank you very much for that. Thanks, Arnie Ann, and and my condolences again. Yep, thank you. Bye. Bye, Annie Megan. Bye. Love and respect. We'll talk soon. Nice to talk soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Take care. Take care. 3CR. Health Before Profits which threatens the health and safety of Australia's poor, working class and Indigenous communities. We demand an immediate return to a zero COVID elimination strategy before it's too late. Join us for online forums, activism and campaigns. To find out more, follow Health Before Profits Vic on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Health Before Profits is a 3CR supporter. And you're back with the Doing Time show. And you just heard an interview about Jace, the death in custody of JC, who, as she is known for cultural reasons. 
and we were speaking with Auntie and her her foster mother or her mother, and um, also with Auntie Megan as well, who um, deals with suicide prevention. Coming up on the show now, we're going to be speaking with Ian Rintel from the Refugee Action Coalition. And the Do and Time show has been doing extensive media coverage on this topic for many, many months. And in fact, in 2020, we warned that the refugees um, in the Park Hotel and also in Mitre um, Detention Centre in Broadmeadows will be contracting coronavirus. And now all of a sudden the mainstream media has gotten... um, hold of this topic, um, and it's good that it's being covered, but it's a little bit late now, isn't it? Um, so on the show, I'd like to welcome Ian, who will talk about the refugees with COVID-19 and looking at the spread and what's going on and the inadequate measures taken by the Australian government. Hello, Ian. Welcome to the program. Yeah, hi, Marissa. So uh, what, what's going on? Um, well, it's stalemate at the moment. There are you know, st- 20 confirmed cases, but uh, we've got the same problem we had right at the beginning of the outbreak, is that uh, there is a, an obvious delay, whether it's an orchestrated delay or not, we're not sure, but uh, instead of everyone getting their test results yesterday, um, only the only test results were given to people were uh, negative test results. So uh, why you, uh, you know, people can all be tested on the same the same day? The sixth is the second time around, uh, and for you know one one of those negatives to be positive, um, and and the rest uh, negative, and still about half the people who are tested haven't got a haven't got a result. And this is. Uh, the third day. Um, this is a, the kind of farce which uh, you know, resulted in the spread of um, you know, COVID in Soak Park in the first place. And I believe that there have been a couple of protests happening um, in regards to this? <coughs> yes, I mean, there was a, a picnic protest but the cops uh, tried to... Um, uh, disperse and uh, you know actually actually warn people if they were picnicking um, you know unlawfully between uh, two o'clock and four o'clock I think it was last weekend then uh, they would be issued with fines but people did picnic uh, but there was a protest on Saturday just gone and there was you know perhaps uh, around 200 people actually came to that protest so um, you know that was uh, very good very heartening to see as sort of one of the you know the first uh, solid protests since the uh, you know lockdown lifted in Melbourne. So primarily, what are the issues surrounding coronavirus and refugees? Are they? Is it fair to say that they're not getting the same treatment as people in the community? Uh, that's very fair to say. Um, I think there's a few things. I mean, one is that it's a very vulnerable group of people. Uh, I think people need to think about aged care homes in terms of you know some compar- comparable kind of vulnerability, uh, both in terms of the closed nature of the you know their residents. I mean, they're even more confined in the Park Hotel than, you know, than aged care. Um, but uh, many people have underlying medical conditions. All the people in the Park Hotel were brought here either under Medivac or shortly after Medivac was repealed uh, because of you know, medical treatment, requiring medical treatment in Australia. They mostly haven't got that medical treatment, uh, but it doesn't mean there are all kinds of you know, underlying conditions which make them particularly vulnerable. But the circumstances inside the hotel itself um, you know, make them extra extra vulnerable. It's a very high risk environment. It's impossible to socially distance in the conditions inside there. Uh, the windows uh, were actually welded shut by border force after the 
refugees moved in in December last year, uh, so there's no access to the outside, there's no recreation area or anything like that. Um, we're, we're not sure about entirely about the, uh, you know, we know the place is air-conditioned, but the nature of that air-conditioning is not, is not clear, but we also know unless there are specific um, uh, you know, filters and arrangements made to ensure that the air-conditioned air is not just being you know, recycled inside the hotel, then it, then it just does become a, uh, an incubator you know, for, the, for the virus. And at the moment, you've got people who are COVID positive on level one and people who are still, at the moment, COVID negative on levels two and three with um, really you know, nothing of any substance separating the two. This is not a... A usual quarantine, you know, situation, um, and even even prisons uh, go to much uh, greater lengths to ensure that uh, you know the COVID protocols are actually followed, and uh, that's not that's not what's happening inside inside um, the, the you know the Park Hotel. Even in the first instance, when the first cases emerged, people presented with uh, with symptoms. Uh, they weren't tested until to, isolated and tested until two, two days later. But the rest of the hotel, um, even though uh, you know that you had people who were presented with symptoms, they weren't tested until Sunday, four days after um, the the first people had been isolated and and tested, and only after three of those four were found to be positive. I mean, the thing is a um, it's a, a manual for how not to um, you know manage you know COVID infection, and yet we've got the, the you know the federal government in charge of a very high risk environment. And uh, now has to take the responsibility for the fact that you've got uh, 20 of the 46 people inside uh, Park Hotel are, are COVID infected. So why aren't they being evacuated, like cruise ships are in aged care facilities? Well, that's a very good question. The only uh, short answer I can give you is that it's now very clear uh, that Victorian Health does not control, you know, the Park Hotel and the um, quarantine arrangements and all the uh, infection management arrangements are being done by uh, the federal government. Uh, that means Border Force. That means, uh, you know, Serco. And, um, you know, that's that's a recipe you know, for, a, for a disaster. We've got to, you know, I mean, probably don't want to go into it now, but we've got uh, another guard, uh, positive guard at MITRE. Uh, the two compounds in MITRE, at least now, have been shut down for you know another two weeks. Um, so um, it's not just the Park Hotel where it's a problem. We, we, we knew that. But in the Park Hotel, the, uh, the, uh, the abject failures of uh, Border Force and uh, Serco has led to uh, an outbreak which can only be compared to some of the worst that happened in uh, aged care facilities. Ian, this is such a disaster. I mean, it's, you know, there's a failure here to identify the source of the infection and then you've mm. got a complete breakdown of even basic COVID protocols and that leaves the hotel and the community at greater risk, doesn't it? The whole the whole thing is at greater risk. I mean, uh, you know, I wouldn't be at all surprised. Well, I, I mean, to be, to be blunt, I, I expect there will be more positive cases inside the Park Hotel uh, because of the you know the failures to properly isolate and 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 quarantine um, that much has that's happened you know already um, but yes uh, I mean normally there would be a you know move heaven and earth to actually identify the source of the infection to make sure uh, you know that all the possible you know close contacts you know were identified that the uh, you know the exposure sites were identified we've heard nothing about which border force officer which circle officer is responsible uh, whether it's uh, you know, the site at, at MITRE, 
is uh, you know is an exposure site. There's been none of that uh, information that's come out of the you know the Park Hotel. So I think that also the fact is, I mean, while I'm very happy to hear that Victorian Health is writing to the federal government, um, the fact is that uh, Victorian Health has also slipped up on this uh, as well, and they have allowed what is an, an obvious COVID failure uh, on their on their watch in the middle of their you know of, the, of Melbourne um, and have done nothing about it except you know belatedly uh, you know write to uh, the you know the Department of Home Affairs and try to try to get some answers. Um, really, they should be taking control of the Park Hotel out, out of the hands of the uh, federal government and uh, you know border force who have um, you know shown that they they have simply have no idea what they're doing. These sound like subhuman standards. I mean, you've got, if you can imagine, um, listeners, that you've got refugees that are that have coronavirus. That if they if they're not sick enough to be hospitalised, um, they they're suffering in there, closed up, and and that leads me to my next question: Have they have the refugees been able to be hospitalised with coronavirus? Uh, one one is in hospital on, on oxygen uh, when there's been a couple of instances of people being uh, you know transported to hospital to be checked before being brought back you know, to the to the hotel. Um, we have been given an undertaking by the government that if ambulances are called to the hotel, they will be allowed to uh, see the people who you know who, who called the ambulance. But we've also got got good evidence that that's not what is actually happening um, in in practice. But I think uh, perhaps more to the point in terms of the medical facilities inside the park, park hotel i mean it is it is a farce you've got two nurses um now are two nurses uh, there used to only be one but the second one's been employed since last tuesday they're only on uh, call only on roster from eight o'clock to four o'clock in the afternoon after four o'clock uh covid doesn't knock off um and even to get panadol after four o'clock uh requires the people themselves to actually make phone calls to off-site medical authorities um, go through numerous questions, sometimes on the phone for 15 or 20 minutes answering the questions before those medical authorities will actually authorise you know, a couple of Panadol uh, for people. Uh, yesterday we had an absurd situation where the, the nurse was around once a day um, and uh, but there was no Panadol you know, available on that, uh, that dispensing room. Uh, so it's it's just it's just ridiculous, you know, that they couldn't even you know wander up the road to Woolies and uh, you know grab a few boxes of Panadol when they realised they were out of it. Um, but as I said, the fact that you've only got two nurses from eight till eight till four, no one inside the hospital has actually seen a doctor. At best, they've been. There's been some consultation, you know, by uh, you know over the you know over the phone, um, but it also means that um, there's no uh, there's no routine observations. The nurse goes around once once a day, usually later in the afternoon. Uh, food is dropped in the uh, outside their doors, um, so the doors aren't you know aren't opened. And, by, and um, if they collapse inside, as, as has happened in a couple of cases, um, no one's. No one checks on them. They, they could they could be there for hours uh, if they're not able to use uh, use their phone or you know get to the, the door and you know bang on the door. Um, so I mean it's it's unacceptable no matter which way you you look at it. And you can only I think understand why those kind of conditions are allowed uh, to uh, you know to fester in you know in Melbourne uh, when you understand you know the government policy to refugees. Uh, this is a this is a government that you know created Manus Island 
you know, and Nauru. Um, it's indifferent to, you know, the health of refugees. It's indifferent to their lives uh, in general. And, um, you know, that indifference and com- complacency is, um, you know, in, you know, being seen in spades at the Park Hotel. What a national shame indeed. And in just one last question, in regards to the vaccination rollout, what's going on there? Well, that's another travesty. I mean, vaccines were first available in Australia in February. Um, the people in detention were not offered uh, vaccines until the first week of August. Um, people in Park Hotel uh, did not get their first doses until the 30th of August. Uh, there are people who did um, request vac- vac- vaccination and haven't uh, received it. Um, but, um, I mean, to be honest, there is also a level of vaccine hesitancy inside the Park Hotel. These are people who uh, were liable to be removed back to Manus and Nauru. Uh, being vaccinated was a precondition uh, for that removal, so many of them were very reluctant uh, to be vaccinated until they were actually released from the hotel and, and, and said as much. So, you know, vaccine the you know, vaccination rates probably not as high, you know, as they you know as they should be. But I think that's no um, no explanation uh, for you know for the COVID spread. You know, we we saw the the necessity and the possibility of actually managing COVID without vaccine prior to February 2021. And there's no uh, as much as we want everyone to be vaccinated. Uh, we the government will need to give a guarantee uh, that they are not going to remove you know people uh, because they. If they are vaccinated to Manus and, uh, and Nauru. The other big problem, uh, which we tried to get around, you know, was that the the people who make the appointments uh, is IHMS, and IHMS is the medical detention medical provider is, you know, just regarded as a wing of, uh, of border force. Uh, they're used to medical mistreatment and negligence at the hands negligence at the hands of IHMS. They simply did not not many of people just did not trust IHMS uh, to um, you know to have their best interests at heart and so we're very reluctant to uh, accept appointments that were made, being made for them you know, by um, IHMS. Um, so, yeah, the vaccination rates, you know, uh, certainly we want people to be vaccinated but the you, know, you, you can't understand what's happening in, in park without looking, you know, at the policy of detention, at, the, at offshore detention and, and the, the recreation of those circumstances now in the park hotel and other APODs and detention centres uh, in Australia, and um, the you know that's why you know, our argument is there are immediate things which need to be done. You know they do need to be evacuated from that hotel. They do need to be you know safely safely quarantined. But over, overriding all that, um, we need we need to see them you know freed. You know so that they're, the constraints of you know detention are you know are removed. Them it's the only way they're going to be able to live safely and securely in the Australian community. Australia is indeed a crime scene and the lack of accountability here is immeasurable. It's, it really is, isn't it, Ian? Yeah, no, it's a, it's, it's a crime and what is happening in, in, in Park Hotel is a, is, is a national shame. It should be you know, a national scandal. Um, hopefully it will reach that level. As I said, it's, you know, it's encouraging that Victorian Health is actually writing uh, to the department, but the truth is that on every press release which has come out by Border Force, at the end of it, they've said you know that the that the Park Hotel is being uh, you know, operated in conjunction with the health authorities from the Victorian Health. Now we know pretty much now that that's that's a lie. It's not the first lie that you know Border Force has told, but it certainly is one more indication why you know we're not going to see a substantial change in Park Hotel until 
the control of that of that uh, hotel is taken out of the hands of border force, and that means releasing, you know, the people from the control of border, you know, control of border force, so that uh, Victorian Health, you know, can uh, can have and can can actually exercise control and ensure that there are proper safe, you know, practices, uh, you know, put in put in place, and that the interests of the people in the hotel are put first. At the moment, the primary interest of the government is to maintain their, uh, you know, their border protection policy, their their offshore detention policy. And as we know, we've seen people, you know, die offshore as a consequence of that policy. You know, now we see quite literally, you know, lives being put at risk on the, in the Australian mainland. Absolutely, and I'm assuming that um, that there's been information um, that you people have talked to refugees inside about all this. Look, we're in touch with the many, many refugees. Once, twice, you know, three, four times, uh, you know, a day. So, um, you know, that the information about, you know, about the nurses, the food, the availability of Panadol, the offsite, you know, consultations, all that is available for the authorities if they want it. Um, I can give them, you know, dates, times. I can give them individuals if they want to uh, to go in. But I think it says volumes. I mean, where else would we see a situation where you have the scale and the proportion of infections happening in a hotel in in Victoria? and you would not see a Victorian health official actually go in to even inspect the place. Uh, you know, the fact that you know, the people positive, I said, are on level one and people on level you know, two and three, it's a recipe you know, for infection. Now, that's been available in the, you know, the, the, it's been in the you know, public arena for the last you know, 10, days or, 10 days or more. Um, so you know, there's also Victorian Health, I think, has to take a degree of responsibility. They turned a blind eye to what's happening in, in Mida. They turned a blind eye, you know, to Mantra, and they turned a blind eye to the Park Hotel. And the, you know, the consequences are: we've got 20 confirmed cases, one so far in hospital. But you know, we know that COVID uh, can have a long-term, you know, effect, and we may well be, you know, watching, uh, you know, 20, 20 people actually having further detrimental effects to their to their health and. Uh, you know, longevity because of the refugee policy in Australia. Absolutely, and they say we're all in this together and, you know, we're going to... Freedom Day, Freedom Day, open up the restaurants, present the vaccination passports, and everybody's enjoying themselves. And what about the refugees? Yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, Melbourne may be the lockdown may be lifted in Victoria and lifted in Melbourne, but the the, the tragedy is is that the refugees are are locked in and they're being locked in an environment that you know is almost guarantees you know, further positive cases. Thank you so much for coming onto the program, Ian. You've given a very concise account of what's going on. Thank you very much. Okay, Marissa. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye bye. Bye bye. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. If you're a renter experiencing hardship due to the pandemic, you can check now to see if you're eligible to apply for the Victorian Government's new one-off rental relief grant worth up to $1,500. To help you, Tenants Victoria have put together an eligibility checklist. This will make it easier for you to assess whether you're eligible to apply for the grant, which is paid as a contribution towards rent. There are some steps involved to qualify for the grant. See the checklist for more information and visit the Tenants Victoria website for further details on how to apply. Go to tenantsvic.org.au and search for Rent Relief Grants. Tenants Victoria is a 3CR supporter.
And we're just about out of time. This is a Doing Time show, 3CR Community Radio. Thank you to all our guests today. Thank you to Auntie Megan and Auntie Anne Jones. And also thank you to Ian Rintel from the Refugee Action Coalition. This show was dedicated to JC, um, who died in custody. JC, um, as she is known for cultural reasons. So, yeah, tune in every Monday from 4 to 5 for the Doing Time show. Um, and thanks so much. Take care of each other. Bye.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.